0: we as Daniel mentioned, we're looking at leadership in the body and what that looks like. Um, leadership is always a, a, both a tricky thing and a, a, a scary thing as well. Uh, a young man was appointed uh, president of a bank, and uh, he was, you know, new to his responsibilities, is was a little intimidated by them, so he went to his predecessor and he says, sir, what was the secret to your success? the secret, he said, young man, is two words, right decisions. Well, how do you make right decisions, he asked. The older man replied, one word, experience. But how do you get experience, the old man smiled, two words, wrong decisions, right? And uh, Leadership is, a, is an interesting thing, especially in the body of Christ, because Christianity is about Jesus primarily, right? It's about what he's done for us, the grace that he has given us by dying on the cross, rising again from the grave, and that hope that we have in eternal life. And, and that means that we have a totally different perspective on life. We have a totally different perspective on who we are, that we are chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're, we're part of the body of Christ, and we're, uh, we have a new destiny, heaven, heaven be with God forever, to live forever with Him. And therefore, leadership in the body has some overlap between leadership at other areas of life, but leadership is helping people focus on what in the body is leadership is helping people focus on what Jesus has done and helping and following Him through our example and through the, the words that we speak. And there's two, two basic terms. In in the New Testament for le- that that involve leadership of the church, the first one is is uh, is one term that's used in three different ways. It's the it's it's the term elder or pastor or bishop. They're all three terms that refer to the same um, same office, if you will, the same position. And we're going to see that in First Peter chapter five. The other um, uh, term is deacon that or servant. It just basically means servant, uh, but it's it's often used in a technical term for an office. And for instance, uh, it's, it's a, used in a broad variety of ways in the New Testament for servant. For instance, Phoebe is referred to as a deaconess in, in Romans chapter 16, uh, having an official role that the church had given her. Paul even refers to himself as a deacon um, when he, in Colossians when he's talking, because he's not there. He, he didn't start the church. He's not there. there pastor, if you will, and so he refers to himself as a deacon of the gospel um, in Colossians. And so deacons uh, are a role that's usually uh, more limited in scope. It's, it's not responsible for the whole thing, but they're given a specific task, a specific function within the, the roles and, and, and the functions of the church. And overall, Christ calls all, all leaders to be servants, that is, to be involved in the servants of, of the body. And so my goal this morning is you're like, okay, well, why, why leadership? Well, the tight, where your leadership is taking you is where you're, is where you're headed, right, in a sense. And, and so it's important in the sense of you need to know how to evaluate what, what your leadership is doing. Is it going the right way? Is it being biblical in what it's doing or not? And the... the this, the guide we have is Scripture, right? Scripture is our sole and sufficient rule for its faith and practice. So we can go to Scripture and say, how do we evaluate our leaders? They're not, they're not these, you know, um, God-appointed people that can do whatever they please, and, and they're, they're not accountable for anything. But they are accountable for how they guide the body. And so it starts off, uh, the other thing about leadership is it's always historical. There's always a reason why you have leadership in place. And so we, we have to go back in Scripture to see why, why the leaders in the church were called elders, first and foremost. And so the, uh, so we're going to see that in 1 Peter 5. No, I'm going to start by reading the, the text. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is that... Um, Peter here calls himself a fellow elder. He doesn't he doesn't raise himself up over the other elders in the church, but he's coming alongside of them as a fellow elder, trying to encourage them in a certain in a certain role that they have. And then he calls those elders to shepherd and to oversee, or the word often is translated bishop, the church. Uh, and then at the same time, it's kind of a he, he he does three three positive things and three negative things. And so there's these uh, kind of this chiastic structure here where um, the the positive things are listed first and the negative things are listed second in order to help you better understand how church leadership is supposed to function. And so I'm kind of combining those with with my first point here by by saying being an elder means taking the long view by example rather than domineering. Because he says here in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight Again, how do we end up with the term elder? Well, elders is kind of an Old Testament term. It starts back um, kind of the clan heads, right? The the, the clans that were formed as, as, uh, as Israel was formed into a nation. Those clans of different families in the tribes that had elders. They were just, in a sense, the clan head. They, they kind of guided the clan uh, forward. And those elders then made decisions. And we're going to see, as, as the exile happened, and those families kind of gotten broken up, and you couldn't really trace your family line as well as before, is that those elders got moved to the Jewish synagogue. So the synagogue and the elders of the synagogue became the new kind of center for authority, especially Um, kind of that that sense of authority within the community. But, of course, the reason why they were exiled was for a variety of reasons, but one was because the elders weren't doing their job. So, in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 1, God uh, talks about um, the elder kind of younger relationship, so to speak. And he says, For behold, Isaiah chapter 3 verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. There's our term, right? The captain of 50, the captain of rank, the counselor, the skillful, skillful musician, and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. And here, what he's saying is, is essentially saying, this is this isn't a failure by the elders. This is a failure by the people to not not appreciate their elders, not appreciate the people who are supporting them. And he says, okay, you don't appreciate the support that you've been given. I'll take it away. And what will happen is, is you'll start to despise one another. You'll start to, you'll, you'll take what is honorable and turn it into what's dishonor. And we'll, you'll elevate what was dishonorable and elevate it to honor. Because one of the functions of the elders, in a sense, was to, was to uphold what is honorable. To say, this is what's honorable, this is what's not. And, and, and since they weren't appreciating that role, he's saying, I'm going to take it away. A, a few verses later, he says this. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of the peoples. Uh, It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So here he's addressing the elders. He's saying you're failing. Why? Because you're not upholding justice. You're not taking care of the poor. You're not honoring the people who need honor when no one else will honor them in a sense. And so honor is a big part of what elders are doing is they're saying, this is what's honorable, this is what's not. This is what's respectful, this is what's not. And especially in the sense of justice within the community and caring for people in the community. And so... Uh, I was just thinking about this rule, what does that mean? Because overall then elders have to think long view. They can't think just short-term solutions. They have to think, lo- what's what's the long view here? And you have to think not just what's good for me, in a sense, but what's good for the longevity of the community. You have to think not just for our generation, but what's, what's happening next in the next generation, and the generation after that. Jeremiah touches on this because he again accuses the elders. He says, Thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the center of the potsher gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Because the peoples have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offering in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor their kings of Judah have known. So idolatry is, is a problem and, and the people have fallen into it and, the, and the, the elders, the rulers, haven't addressed it. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire has burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or decree nor did it come into my mind. he said like... I keep the last verse here. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall be no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And and so, and again, so it's interesting here because there's this play here between what's happening with the, the next generation, the children, and, and the, what the people are doing, and how the elders are addressing it, in a sense. And he's saying, look, one of the, the functions of the elders is to care for the next generation, and you're not, you're allowing people to destroy the next generation, right? And so, and again, this play on the idea of the valley of the sun of Hinnom, like there's, there's, a, there's someone who's going to receive this next, and instead the sun's gone, and so let's call it this valley of slaughter, right? And so there is, the, the, the role of the elder in that sense is to care for the next generation, to think about what is it going to take to create space for this and, and time and energy and honor so that, that people want to care for the next generation. In a sense, it's like a, a grandparent role, but on steroids, if you sense, right? So like you have authority, you can, you can do something about, about it. And and what you're saying is, how do I care so that we set up not my my children's generation, but my grandchildren to be successful and to thrive? And that's the elders' role, is to think long-term. And the elders in the synagogues uh, when it transitioned to that, of course, they're accused in the Gospels of, again, failing the, the same thing. But Jesus acu- mostly accuses them of, of, of getting into tradition, right? They, they think tradition is what is going to help the next generations. And Jesus is like, tradition isn't going to do it. The tradition isn't, isn't going to solve all the problems. It's just not going back to the past. Uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul. First thing up front to, in the pastoral epistles to, to Timothy he says this: the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's saying what you're you're exhorting in your in your congregation, what you're exhorting in the church body is that people give themselves in love to one another and ultimately right to the to the next generations, right? Because we we, we that's what we're supposed to encourage and lift up. That's what keeps things going. So if you summarize this in a sense, what he's saying is that elders have that role of promoting what's honorable, and it means living for others, especially the next generation, without idolizing the children, which sometimes we do in America, like youth, are, <laughs> youth is the only thing that's good. But it's, it's just understanding the value of, of creating honor that helps not just young people, but the next generation of young people to continue to thrive and to live well and to live honorably. Let me just, can I just give you some, let's just think this through a little bit if that's true. I was reading this week a little bit about China's one-child policy. I don't know if uh, uh, you're familiar with this at all, but for a while China had the the policy that that, that, uh, parents could only have one child. And actually, it was only for the majority ethnicity in China, which is the Han ethnicity. So the, the, the minority ethnicities didn't have, didn't have this. Uh, they were exempt from this. But the, the majority population, the majority ethnicity in China could only have one child. And uh, they changed it recently because actually China's uh, population as a whole is on the decline now. It's, it's, it's declining, and they're concerned about it. And so they changed it to, to a three-child policy. It's going it to back up to growth, basically, right? And, uh, but the population overall is not responding. They're not, people aren't having more kids just because the government changed the law, which should make sense if you know how this works. But, uh, uh, and, and so they're trying to evaluate why... The question, this is in a... a European uh, magazine. The question is, why? Like, like okay, they, they limited it by the law. Why not, now that people are allowed to have more kids, why don't they have more kids? So they're just analyzing it. And they realize it's for a couple of reasons, but there's a one main one. They, so, so the ethnicities that, um, that live separate from the Han, they kept having several kids not a problem. They just kept having as many kids as they traditionally had. The the ethnicities that lived with the Han, so probably in the big cities overall, where they're seeing other families only have one child, they also started to only have one child. Um, And so they're analyzing why did that happen? not too different from America. We don't, we don't have laws on this, but, but you see the, 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 parent that only had, the, the parents that only have one child, what do they do? They focus on that one child, right? There's a lot of, a lot of energy and money and time poured into that one child, and they excel. Your children excel when you pour into them. It's true, right? Um, and so, 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 so that sense of competition over space in the education system, space in the job market, space in the, you know. So other ethnicities, even though they didn't have to only have one child, they chose to have one only child because it's a sense of competition. Like, if I don't pour all of my energy into this one child, they're not going to succeed. And, and so that, that attitude or that pattern got, got put in place, right? Um, so that when the China relaxed the rules— they're like, but, but we still need to have this one child succeed. And there's a lot of tension in China over this, honestly, because when you have not just parents pouring into one child, but grandparents pouring, you know, it's, it's like six people saying, you're the sole purpose, you know, you're, you're, you're our hope for success in a sense. Or, that puts a lot of pressure on the child, right? They feel a lot of pressure to be like, okay, and they're like, I'm supposed to succeed because all I've, I'm taking care of six people behind me, right, and and uh, there's there's uh, just a tension between parents and children because there's the the, the child, children feel the the pressure of that, like like if this is all we're supposed to do to succeed, we got to pour you know I, I've got to I've got to if all these people pour them into into me, I better succeed, right. So that's one, one aspect of it. Another aspect is just people get caught up, right, in being busy, pursuing their careers, doing their own thing. Why should I have a kid who might not like me anyway? <laughs> if I if, pour all of my time and energy into that, when I can pour my time and energy into other stuff that... Will make me potentially happier and and at least more less less stressed, and and definitely richer, right? Because kids definitely are uh, expensive, but they're not. But then again, they're not that expensive. But it's so it's about your perspective in a sense, right? And so, it, so one of the the discussions is just what what mistakes in a sense did China make to, to make this policy, right? Why? Because ultimately. You say, well, part of the reason was because of old population, I get that. But at the same time, if you don't value the next generation and the next generation, where are you at? Where are you really at? And God calls us not just to love ourselves, right? But to love no, no, nor even to love just our children, but to love our grandchildren and potentially other people's grandchildren. Like, what, what's, what's that next generation going to do? How are they going to live? In America, we talk about this in terms of our national debt, right? Like, what are we putting on our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren? Because all the debt we're accumulating, right? That's, like, all nations aren't exempt or don't have this figured out, but the elders, in that sense, are supposed to promote what's honorable so that the next generation can, not can succeed, because they might succeed or they might fail, it's on their own. I was So, so this kind of hit home for me this week because um, my kids go to Gilbert High School, if you didn't know, and uh, I coach soccer and I've... Developed. I've helped the soccer program in, in Gilbert, and the, both the girls and the boys teams uh, went to the state championship at in, uh, for for soccer in Gilbert, at Gilbert, and the the boys won. The girls lost the, the championship game, which is I think the first time that they've won the state championship. Right. So it's 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 cool. You know, it's like okay, we were watching it. I was I couldn't make it down there. I was watching it online, and and it went to double overtime, and then it went to penalty kicks, and then all five penalty kicks everybody made, so it went to sudden death penalty kicks, and then uh, and then the, the goalie uh, Matthew Weber, uh, who I who I coached as a little kid, and and he was he loved to play goalie. Um, but he always charged out of the goalie box. I was like, Matthew, please don't. <laughs> Just <laughs> stay a little bit under control. Um, he blocked the penalty kick, and then the next, our guy uh, made the penalty kick, and Gilbert won, right? It was awesome, right? It was, everybody was celebrating. It was cool. And at the same time, right, so is it my, is it my win? No. I had nothing really to do with it, right? Those boys, or they were under BJ, they worked hard, it's their victory, right? It's their victory. And yet, at the same time, from an elder perspective, the joy I get is saying, I, we, we, we created the space to let that to happen, right? So here's the temptation elders have, is to say, well, that's my victory, I, I want that, it. it's mine. No, it's not, it's not my victory. It's, it's, it's their victory. It's a it's it's that it's that sense of 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 just you're passing on to the next generation, giving them space to fight their battles and, and conquer their foes so that they can thrive in their situation. And yet at the same time, you're saying, I'm trying to eliminate some threats so that you can be able to do that, right? Because there are threats out there. And that's one of the reasons why here in First Peter he he says he says the, the main exhortation he gives to elders is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Which brings me to point number two. Being a shepherd means providing for and protecting the flock rather than working for their own gain. That is, the, the elder's own gain. Shepherds are all about... Providing and protecting. The, 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 the shepherd metaphor, as Daniel and we sang about it this morning, is, is a king metaphor. It was, it was not just for Jew, the Jews. The whole Middle East had this metaphor in mind when they, when they thought about a good king. They thought that, and even kings bragged about it, they said, I'm a good king because I'm a good shepherd. <laughs> and what do they mean by that? They're saying they protect and provide for the flock, they, they, their people are protected and provided for. And shepherd, that, that idea of king, good kingship that pro- protects against internal and external threats. As we sang, right, this morning, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, you could translate it in a sense or the metaphors there. The Lord is my king, right? He provides what I need. He leads me beside still waters. He, he feeds me in, in green pastures. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, he's he's a good king. He protects me. He provides for me. The pro, the trouble I've ran across this quote. The trouble with being a leader today is you can't be sure whether people are following you or chasing you. Right? Like what's what's, what's the relationship here? And the in the, the, biblically speaking, that pastoring role is is most done by taking people back to the word and preaching truth. In in. In the New Testament, Paul rarely uses the word elder at all, because he's ministering to the Greeks, and the elder term was mostly a Jewish term. He, he uses it in the pastoral epistles, but he uses other terms, and he uses the practical terms in a sense of what, he uses the term to oversee, to bishop, and he uses the word to pastor, you know, to, 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 to shepherd people. And he does that, especially you see that in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says the pastor teachers. And you look at the pastoral epistles and you see that the the primary way that pastors protect and provide for the flock is by teaching truth. It's by taking people back to the word of God and saying, this is truth. This is right. This is good. That's error. This is is right. You see this even in 1 Peter, this final exhortation of 1 Peter 5, is is Peter encouraging the elders and saying, hey, be faithful at this. Why? Because your people are going to suffer. You can't protect them from everything. They're going to suffer in various ways. They're going to suffer because their bosses uh, don't treat them very well. They're going to suffer because their marriages don't always go the way they, they want them to go. They're going to suffer because their children don't always obey and, and, and then always turn out the way they expect. And they're going to suffer just in their friendship relationships because things don't go the way they want. And and how do you, how do you have the right mindset in suffering? How do you do that well? And he's He's saying, hey, as a fellow elder, I'm saying we all go through suffering. We know that, but we know that there's a glory that's going to be revealed. Therefore, shepherd the flock of God, not for your own gain, not for your own profit, right? The classic problem both in the world and sometimes in the church is pastors or shepherds or kings, rulers, who use their authority for their own personal profit, like, this, is, this gets me ahead, this makes me, this makes me look good, or this, this fulfills me in some way, and so it's all about me, and not about what's happening in the next generations to come. You think also of, the, in the Old Testament, the elders of Israel, their, their big temptation was, hey, we've got all these external threats, all these kingdoms that are a problem, we need a king, you know? They just wanted one person to come in and solve the problem, and so they picked Saul, right? And God's like, no, I'm your king. The temptation of elders is is to forget that God is king, that he's the one who provides, he's the one ultimately who protects, and then we go to him and we lead people back to him, and we, we look for someone else, some one person to solve the problem. Stuart Briscoe wrote, "...a qualifications of a pastor, he must have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros." Right. And it's partially true, just because you are protecting people, you have to be able to protect people, even sometimes from themselves. And how do we do that? How do we protect and provide besides preaching truth? Well, being an overseer means focusing on grace willingly rather than out of obligation. Your, your, your choice a lot of times in leadership is to focus people on their duty. Just focus them on their duty. Get stuff done. You're you're responsible for this. You need to get this done. And so you better do it. The one time in the the New Testament that the word is used as a verb, being an overseer, is in Hebrews chapter 12. In this passage where it's talking about... Matt, I think I hit the button wrong here. Can you move me on to the next slide? Is that you? Is it locked up? Okay, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12. All right, just turn, flip back a little bit. Verse Hebrews 12 12. It's nice and easy. uh, He says, Therefore, lift up your. He's talking about um, enduring again, getting through suffering. Um, and he says, Therefore, lift up your dro- drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And here's the, the, the verse. See to it that no one fa- fails to obtain the grace of God. That word for see is again the, is actually the word for oversee. And he's it, saying, Look out so that people don't miss the grace of God. One of the biggest functions we have in, in, in protecting people is to help them not miss the grace of God that is in working in them and through them. It's not so much about duty, although duty is a part of it, but it's about love. It's about a love for God that comes out of a pure heart and sincere faith. And that means that we respond to the grace of God. This is a, a two-way relationship with God. God gives us grace and we respond with gratefulness, right? We respond with love. And what we're overseeing overall is that people don't miss the grace of God in their lives. And it's, it's easy at times, right? We get caught up in my, the things I've got to do today or the, 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 the places I've got to accomplish or the, the things that I've got to handle. And we judge our lives by how, how much our task list gets done. Or we judge our lives by how well our relationships are going. Or we judge our lives by how well our 401k is growing. And we miss the fact that God's grace is in the midst of even the difficulty and the hardship and the challenge. That, 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 that's actually where we find God's grace. If you see it, if you, if you look back at First Peter, he, he does this. Right? Let, me, let me just read you all the times it mentions grace in First 1 Peter. First 1 Peter 1.10 Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's saying, you're going to receive grace, and the prophets prophesied about it. So this salvation is about grace. First Peter 1.13, three verses later, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, hey, you know, you're going to handle some things in life, but set your hope fully on the grace that's coming when Christ returns. First Peter 3, in talking to husbands, he says, Likewise, husbands, live your, with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. He's saying, look, you, you're receiving grace. We're, we're receiving grace together. Don't you realize that and how you treat your wife? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In 1 Peter 4. And then here, just a few verses later, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's not a mistake that he put that quote in there, right? He's saying this is about grace and pastors Bishops, elders, this term is synonymous. They're all the same. He's saying, don't help people not to miss grace. Help people not to miss the grace that is given to you. And Theodore Roosevelt was an interesting president. William Beeb writes this recollection in, in a, a, a magazine. He says, at Sagmore Hill, Theodore Roosevelt and I used to play a little game together. After an evening of talk... We would go out on the lawn and search the skies until we found this faint spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Now, if you can find that, you're better than me. Then one or other other of us would recite, This is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies, and now they know there are way more than that. It consists of one billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would grin and say, Now I think we are small enough let's go to bed, right? Why? Because this is grace. We live in grace. We walk in grace, right? And that's why the the, kind of the final point here is that humility needs to guide us all, right? But he summarizes, he says this between elders and, and people who are not in the elder position, he says, be humble with one another. Be humble with one another. Why? So that we receive grace upon grace from God. This is not about who's going to show off their accomplishments. This is not about who's going to succeed. This is not about getting my way or your way. This is about receiving grace from God because Christianity is about the grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. And we cannot, we cannot, we cannot get away from that. The grace that we have received and the grace that we need to receive And that's why Paul ends this this passage here by saying God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. My wife pointed out this quote to me by Eugene Peterson. The Christian way is not about us, it's about God. The Christian way of life is not a life project for becoming a better person. We are in on it to be sure, but we are not the subject, nor are we the action the verb, we get included by means of a few prepositions, God with us, Emmanuel, Christ in me, for I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, God for us, right? This is about God. And what hopefully elders realize, and they fail at this too, is that life is about God. It's about His grace. It's about how we hold up the honor of living for Him and to Him and and from Him. And we help the next generations to create space so that they can walk with God and find His grace. Yes, we all live in suffering. We We live in a broken world. But we live in the grace of God. And we live that out by example primarily and by exhortation so that we care for our spiritual children. This is, this is what it's about. Can we create space so that we can care for spiritual children that come into our lives? In that sense, what does a good shepherd do? He's not the one who makes the sheep, right? He just provides the space so the sheep can make more sheep, right? And the question we have to ask ourselves is is are we creating space to let God's grace work in our lives? Now, just just a historical point here as well. Acts 14 points out that what the New, ex, New Testament expectation was, was that elders arise from within the, ch- the church body. That is, people who care for the church body, who see the long view, who, who want to protect the flock, so to speak, and want to focus them in on grace. They, they arise from within the church body. It, the, Paul always exhorted Titus or whoever, or even did it himself when he was going around to different churches as they got more established, he's like, okay, who's arisen as elders and appoint them? You know, he worked with the church to appoint them as elders to guide the individual uh, uh, congregations. Historically, Baptists overall, we we didn't even care if they they were trained very much. It was all about, again, do, do they have the right kind of character to do the job, and again, we have a church, as a church, have a vision to be a, lo- a scripture-loving family the disciples in grace and truth in order to impact the community for the gospel of Christ. And again, it's about that family idea, right? The, the elders, in a sense, are saying, hey, we want the family to flourish t- so that th- there's enough space so the next generation can trust God and find his grace and walk with him. So my exhortation to you as a, as a pastor to a congregation is stop being too busy. Stop scheduling your life so tightly that you have no space for spiritual children in your life. It, it's not, it doesn't uphold honor. It doesn't help the next generations. You, you, you need to The best thing your children need, whether your physical children or your spiritual children, is they need time with their parents. They need time. Don't be too busy, but instead start focusing on the grace of God in your own life. Start seeing His grace. Start noticing the ways that it it operates in you in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your joys. Now notice the grace of God in your life and rejoice in it. Why? Because we don't know when Christ is going to return. He could return tomorrow. He could return today for that matter, right? But he could return in 300 years or 3,000 years. It's not really up to us. And so we think about the next generation, we think about what, what's happening in the world, and we, and we as a congregation, we can't control all the external threats that are out there. We can't control even all the internal threats. As Paul told the elders in Acts 20, there will be wolves that arise even within the church, right? But what we can do is we can cling to truth. We can know truth, we can walk in truth, and we can cling to grace, that God is in the midst of this. He has not given up on this world. This world is not going to destroy itself. He is going to rescue it. He is. And that's the hope that we have, not because we are going to make it all happen, not because we can force the governments of the world to, to make it right, but because Christ is going to return, and he is going to set things right. And that's not anything we deserve or have earned or can manipulate. It's simply grace. So will you live in grace? If you've never received the grace of God, it, it starts by simply re- recognizing that Christ died on the cross for you and rose again. He did it for you. He didn't just die 2,000 years ago to kind of to be a good example so that people could understand that we're supposed to love one another. He did it to die in your place to pay your sins before God so that you can know that he, God loves you and is welcoming you into his family. And Romans 10, 13 says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We just have to ask for the grace. It's just like parenting. Parents, parents love to give gifts to their kids, especially when the kids ask, right? So have you asked, have you received the grace of God? And if you have, Will you cling to it? Will you not get caught up in what you can accomplish or what you're going to do with your life? But will you live honorably, depending on the grace of God, walking in the grace and delighting in truth? Will you do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We miss it so often. The grace of a sunrise or a sunset, the grace of a beautiful day, the grace of a rainy day, the grace of things going well, the grace of things not going so well, the grace of you moving in our hearts and softening it to you so that we delight in you and we rejoice in your goodness in our lives. Lord, thank you for your grace. Help us not to miss it. Help the leaders that arise in this church to protect it so that we we cling to truth and rejoice in grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen.